Let's open to John chapter 7. We've been going through this, another long chapter. We'll spend two weeks in this chapter. And this is right on the heels of Jesus spending time in, um, on the Sea of Galilee. Where he proclaimed that he was the bread of life. He says, I am the bread of life. And in doing so, he proclaimed himself as deity. He, he proclaimed himself as being God in the flesh. Going all the way back to Exodus 16. That as God provided manna in the desert for the children of Israel as they came out of Egypt. And that was a physical provision that God had given them. But now he was going to give him the true bread, the true manna from heaven which is not something that's physical and temporal, but it would last forever because it would be, he would be the very bread of God, that if we take him in, if we believe in him, if we receive him, that from within us would spring forth everlasting you know, water to everlasting. And of course, he's speaking of the new birth. The idea of being born again, that's not something that the church just made up. That's something that is a fact. And in fact, we all need to be born again. Left to myself, I, I've made a mess of my life. And I wish it were true that, you know, I've somehow reached this state of perfection, but I haven't. And, and no offense, but none of you either. <laughs> right? We are all in the process of sanctification. But if you're born again, the Spirit of God indwells you, and now you have a, the very power of God within you to withstand sin, to push away sin, to no longer be a slave to it any longer. And so Jesus, as he is telling them that he is the bread of life, and then it's after this, there's some time, we'll, we'll see this in a few moments, there was about six months between this moment and what we're going to be looking here at chapter 7, but let's Read now in chapter 7, just the first 24 verses. It says, after these things, after this event where Jesus proclaimed himself the bread of life, after these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand, and his brothers therefore said to him, depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret, while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. And then Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to this feast. I will not yet go, be going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And when he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up, they, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. And then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? And there was much complaining among the people concerning him, and some said, he is good. And others said, no, on the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one openly spoke of him for fear of the Jews. Now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and he taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, how does this man know letters, having never studied? And Jesus answered them and said, my doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine whether it is from God or whether I speak of my own authority. And he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you keep the law? Why do you seek to kill me? And the people answered and said, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? And Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work, and you all marvel. Moses, therefore, gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, 
but judge with righteous judgment. Father, we thank you for this passage and pray that, Lord, you would uh, just bless it, Lord, as we expound on it and learn from it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go back to the very first verse. It said, After these things Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. One thing we have to remember, we know that the Gospels are really a composite of all that Jesus said and did. If you took all of the Gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you combined them and fit, them, fit the puzzle, the timeline together, you would get one composite of the things that were recorded by, his, uh, by the four evangelists here. You'll get a complete composite of things. And sometimes, between verses, between chapters, there can be months. There can be many days, many weeks, many months in between. And such is the case for us here. Because between chapter or verse 1 of chapter 7 here and verse 2, there is approximately six months that have gone by. Because it says that after this time that Jesus was in Galilee, uh, uh, you know, speaking concerning him being the bread of life, that he walked in Galilee, for he did not walk, want to walk in Judea, because the Jews sought to kill him. Because if you remember, if you were to look at a map, there's Galilee, there is Samaria, and then there's Judea. And Judea is where Jerusalem was. Judea was where the religious leaders were. Judea was the place where those who wanted to kill Jesus resided. And so Jesus was very content being up in Galilee for a season. He wasn't afraid to die. We know that he wasn't. But there was a time that Jesus was going to go to the cross, and he was going toward it like flint, the Bible tells us. That was his purpose. He knew that. He wasn't afraid to die, but there was a time, there was a time, an hour. And we'll see this phrase throughout the, the scripture today where he says, my hour is not yet come. My time is not yet come. The time had not come for Jesus to be manifested on the cross, paying the price for the sin of man. That had to happen, do you understand, on a very specific time at a very specific day that the bible had foretold jesus would be that passover lamb spoken of in exodus 12 and he would die on the very time that they were slaughtering the lambs for the passover and it was a high passover that year and so jesus he was able to throttle if i can use that term because of the connection with the Father, because of his prayer with the Father, he knew exactly when it was the right time. He knew when to go to Jerusalem, and he knew when to stay away from Jerusalem, because Jerusalem was a hotbed. He visited there, remember when we were in chapter 5, when we talked to the men that he had healed this paralytic at the pool of Bethesda, remember? And he did it on the Sabbath. Oh, no. He did it on a Sabbath. And they were all upset because he did this work on the Sabbath. And after that event, Jesus left to go to Galilee, where we read about the feeding of the 5,000 on the, on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And then he comes back to Capernaum. And then we read about what we read last week about him being the bread of life. But between verse 1 and verse 2, there is approximately six months the events of chapter 6 were just before the Passover. If you look at chapter 6, verse 4, it says that it was, these things happened just before the Passover. And so this was somewhere, somewhere uh, in the in April time frame. And now we come to this time in the Feast of Tabernacles, where, which is in October. So there's a period of about six months that have happened. And what happened during those six months? Jesus stayed, as we read in verse 1, he stayed in Galilee. But he wasn't inactive. In fact, the other Gospels tell us at least 14 other things that he did. He, he met a Syrophoenician woman, and her faith was demonstrated. Jesus returned to the Sea of Galilee. He feeds the 4,000 on the west side this time of the Galilee. During that time, that six-month period, the Pharisees demanded a sign from Jesus. A blind man was healed at Bethsaida. Peter confessed that Jesus was the Christ. Jesus foretold of his death. We read about the transfiguration when he and Peter, James, and John went up into a mountain and he was transfigured before them. The healing of the demoniac boy. Jesus foretelling his death again. 
Jesus speaking concerning the temple tax. Also, who is the greatest among the kingdom, in God's kingdom? His disciples were talking about that. He also issued a warning against being a stumbling block and also the forgiveness of a sinning brother. All these things in that six-month time frame, and now we get to around October time frame, during this time of the Feast of Tabernacles. And what does it tell us? It says, now the Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. You remember, this is one of the three feasts that all Jewish males were required to go up to every year. It says in Deuteronomy 16 that three times in a year all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses, which is where? Yes, not New Jersey. Yeah, amen. No offense to anybody from here. My wife's from New Jersey, so anyway... In the place where God chooses, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is the Passover, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Weeks is also known as Pentecost, and then the Feast of Tabernacles. And they did not appear, and, and they shall not appear before the Lord empty. So the Lord requires them to appear there in Jerusalem at least three times a year. In Leviticus 23, it tells us a little bit about what the Feast of Tabernacles is. And just to remind you, let me just read a few things to you. In Leviticus, it tells us that the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of this seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. Notice a seven-day feast. And on the first day, excuse me, There shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. For seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation, and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. It is a sacred assembly, and you shall do no customary work in it. And later on in that chapter, in verse 40, he says, And you shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palm trees, the boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God again seven days. And then finally he says in verse 42, he says, You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths made of these palm fronds and these these leafy trees. They would actually build huts for themselves. And they do this in Israel today. They build them on the top of their houses, and they also have satellite dishes bringing in, you know, they got a TV set up in there. It's a true story. That that happens. But they still do that to this day. They live in a booth. And notice that what God says, that that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel. And here's the purpose of the feast that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And so they do this in memorial for what God had done, in thanksgiving for what God had, how he had brought them through the desert for 40 years. They lived in booths, temporary structures. And so they honor that even still to this day. So notice verse 3. So that's the reason for the feast. That's what the feast is. And Jesus is at this seven-day feast. But notice in verse 3, it says, His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples may also see the works that you are doing. Again, I, I need to bring this up to you because there's a lot of misunderstanding in the church about Jesus, that he did have siblings. He had siblings after Jesus was born. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, it says, Is not not this Jesus, the carpenter's son, and is not his mother called Mary and his brothers? And Jesus had half-brothers. Their names are listed here in the scripture at a couple different times elsewhere in the scripture. Their names are James. We know James. He wrote the book of James. After Jesus' resurrection, James came to faith, and he wrote a book. He became the leader in the church in Jerusalem. Notice, in Joses, and Simon, and Judas, which is really Jude, who also wrote a book in the Bible right before Revelation, remember? Another brother that came to faith after Jesus' ascension. And his sisters, plural. So we know he at least had two sisters. And this is a big deal. 
Because there are portions of the church, and uh, specifically the Roman Catholic Church, they hold to a doctrine called the perpetual virginity, the perpetual virginity of Mary. And this doctrine is nowhere to be found in the Bible. It's a man-made doctrine. Basically, according to this doctrine, Mary was an ever-virgin, meaning for the whole of her life, um, for the whole of her life, making Jesus her only biological son, whose conception and birth are held to be miraculous. Yes, his birth was miraculous, but she wasn't a virgin forever, because Mary and Joseph had continued to have siblings. He had at least six other siblings after he was born. Doesn't the scripture, doesn't it tell us that? You can view those yourself. And I would encourage you to take confidence in the word of God. Let the word of God be the thing that you hold to, not the traditions of man. Isn't that what Jesus upbraided the Pharisees? He says, you follow the traditions of man and you deny the the word of God. Anyone, even us, if there's something that we're doing that is, that is contrary to the will of God, to the word of God, we need to reevaluate that is, whatever that is, and get rid of it. We want to honor Jesus. We don't want to build a monument. We don't want to create new doctrines. No, everything is here. And the scripture tells us this. Does it not? We just read it, Right? Notice what his brothers said to him, verse 4. They said, for no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Show yourself to the world, Jesus. Remember, his brothers at this time, they didn't know the Lord. They just saw Jesus as a brother. They, They didn't see him anything. It hadn't been revealed to them. It wouldn't come until after his ascension that the light bulb would go off and go, you know what, I never did see him sin. I never did see him rebel against mom and dad. And we hated him for it. And yet the prophecies of the Bible, hundreds of prophecies, telling, speaking, every page in the Bible speaks to Jesus. In the volume of the book, it is written of me, Jesus said. But Jesus' brothers were not saved at this time, and they had no spiritual discernment. And here they're trying to manipulate Jesus. You know this word, manipulate? (laughs) Manipulate means to control or play upon by artful, unfair, or insidious means to one's own advantage. And let me ask you a question. Does love manipulate? Love does not manipulate. His brothers are trying to manipulate him. In 1 Corinthians 13, we know this very well. Love, does, love suffers long and is kind. It does not envy. It's not, it doesn't parade itself. It is not puffed up. It doesn't behave rudely. It doesn't seek its own. It's not, about, um, it's, it's not selfish. It's not trying to manipulate anything or anyone. Love doesn't do that. Love does not do that. Are you a manipulator? I think to some extent we all are. We all have been. I know I have. And if we're honest with ourselves, we do it. We, we, we can be manipulators. Do you seek to get your way in your life or in someone else's life by browbeating them? Maybe even extorting them, holding something over them? If you don't do this, well, I'm just not going to love you anymore. If you don't do this, well, you're going to be kicked out of the will. If you don't do this, then I give you this cold shoulder. I have this nonverbal communication, and the tension in the house is as thick like a knife because I don't submit. You know, I'm not going to um, you know, be manipulated by you. It has nothing to do with obedience, okay? I mean, we, we need to be obedient. Children need to be obedient to their parents, and we need to be obedient to the Lord. But this goes beyond that. We're trying to make things happen and manipulate people, manipulate our children, manipulate our spouse even we manipulate them by giving them a cold shoulder maybe even withdrawing conjugal rights because you're just not doing what I want you to do I'm unhappy with you so therefore I'm not going to sleep with you anymore I'm going to withhold that from you because I'm angry with you does that happen does it happen in your life it happens in the church God is not pleased with it. Do you have secrets about them if they don't comply with your wishes? Manipulating them? Young people, are you manipulating your parents? 
Even before they even know to do right and wrong, kids manipulate their parents. And how do they do it? They have temper tantrums. You get in Wegmans, you got a four-year-old or a three-year-old, and they, you know, you're there, and there's, a, there's lollipops there at the Wegmans, and you say, not today, not today. You've already had your quota of sugar for the day. I want it now, I want it now, I want it now. And then they fall on the ground, they start writhing around like they're demon-possessed. Foam is coming out their mouth. Everyone's looking, a uh, problem in aisle five. Bring the priest with the exorcism and the holy water, the little tassel with the water in it. The kids manipulating their parents. Why not? Why not? Asking the same question, asking the same question, asking the same question, like water on sandstone, just continuing like a drop. Oh, oh, and then finally you just cave in because you got to deal with it. Anybody been there? Manipulation. His brothers were manipulating him. If you really are the son of God, then go up to Jerusalem now, Jesus. You're the hot shot. Show yourself openly to the world and do it now. Why why are you hiding? Why are you secret? Is there a problem here? And Jesus would say, no, my time is not yet. And they didn't understand that. God the Father and God the Son had a great communion together. He knew when he would go to the cross, and it wasn't then. And the more Jesus stayed in Jerusalem, the hotter it got. So he would go. And he would minister, and then he would withdraw and go up to Galilee and minister to other places. If he was to stay there, they would have crucified him or tried to much earlier. But Jesus, who was in control, the Roman government, the Jews, or was God in control? We know that God was in control. He was very much in control. He was no martyr, Jesus. He went on the very day that God wanted him to go, and exactly the things that happened to him happened. Because God is in control. Is he still in control today? You better believe it. God is in control. I am not in control. Thank God. I've tried to control. And let me tell you, it's a frustrating mess. Have you tried to, to be in control of, your, of everything in your life? Good luck. You're going to be a mess. You're going to be angry. You're going to be frustrated. No one's going to want to be around you. But notice verse 5. Even his brothers didn't believe in him. I like what it says in John chapter 1. It says that Jesus was in the world, and the world was made through him, the word of God, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Not only the world and the people in the world, they belonged to him, they were his own, but the Jews. He came to his own, and they didn't even receive him. He was rejected He's always been rejected. If Jesus were to ascend to be on the, um, if he was to go to CPAC and be there and, and, and share with all the other Republicans, if he was to go to the DNC and share with all of them, hey, guess what? Both parties would say, get this man away from us. We'll crucify him. They would put him to death. They would shun him. They would, they would uh, terminate his Twitter account. They would terminate any videos that he put out on YouTube. He would be silenced. His own web server would be hacked and taken down. For even his brothers didn't believe in him. Are you discouraged as a Christian? That your family or your spouse doesn't believe in Jesus Christ like you? Maybe you're living a yet maybe you have a family, maybe your spouse is not saved. Are you discouraged because they don't believe in Jesus like you? Well, you're in good company. You're in very good company because Jesus' siblings initially didn't believe in him either. You know, when I first got saved, I, uh, the first thing I did is tell my family. I called my mom up. I called my brother. I called everybody I could know. I was so excited. And I told them, and I'm like, I, I, just, I, I didn't understand how anybody could resist the gospel. Because of what have happened to me, I'm like, this is irresistible. How could they not hear it and, and, and be as excited and receive Christ like I have? I didn't understand. I was a young Christian. I just came out of the womb, in a sense. I was just born. I didn't know anything. I didn't know anything. But I had the greatest thing because I was so excited. I was lit up. The Spirit of God was in me. I knew I was forgiven, and the weight had been lifted. My goodness, I was just like a basket case. My whole family's like, oh, 
I'm, I'm assuming, okay, they haven't told me this, but in their hearts I'm wondering if they're like, boy, I really like the old Rob better. The old fornicator, the old guy used to drink, or well, whatever. You know, I like the old guy better. I don't know who this new guy is. He's, it's like a, dude, a different person. Yes. All things in Christ are new. You are a new creature in Christ. The old things have passed. Are be, everything has become new. But don't be discouraged. Even Jesus' own siblings didn't believe in him. So don't be discouraged if your siblings, your spouse, your family doesn't believe in Jesus. You continue to live the life before them. You continue to be the light to them. You continue to be resolved to do the right thing, to follow Christ with all of your heart. Pay no attention to anybody else. Trust me, the best thing you can do is keep your eyes on him and follow him. And if it's God's will, they will watch and they will go, my goodness, I've never seen anything like this. i got to know this Jesus who you believe in because he has changed everything about you and here I am still in my puddle of refuse of my life that I have made for myself. I am living in a cesspool and I see you rising above and you, you, you act like you've been forgiven. It shows in your countenance the things. You're, you're enthusiastic. You're, you're loving people. You're, you're like, wow, got to have that. I'm sick of my life. Anybody here sick of their life? Even as a Christian, I'm sick of the way I, even where I am right now. I want to go further. I want to climb higher. And I don't have to do it in my own strength. I can't do that. But I just rest in Christ. I let him do the work, right, in me. He causes us first to will and then to do of his good pleasure, right? That's how we work out our own salvation. We work it out. What God has already worked in us, we work it out. We can't earn it. We can't do it. So we shouldn't fake it. Just let him do it. For heaven's sake. Jesus said to him, verse 6, said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is already. Jesus, over a period of times, used this phrase more than once, where he would either say that his hour has not yet come, or his time has not yet come. In John chapter 12, Jesus answered and said, The hour has come. There, there was a time when he finally said, The hour is come, and it was the moment that the season, the hour is not a, a physical 24-hour period, but it's a, it's a period of time. His hour did come right before he would go to the cross. Finally, in verse 12, or John chapter 12, verse 23, Jesus answered and said, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Jesus knew that his death was impending. It was coming. And he says in verse 27 of that same chapter, My soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I came to this hour. For this purpose, I came to this hour. In John 13, the very night that he had his last supper, what did he tell his disciples? Hours before he would be arrested and crucified. It says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come. His hour was on the horizon. It was on the radar screen. This period of time that he would be glorified, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And finally, at the end of that supper, you remember in John 17 in his high priestly prayer, Jesus spoke these words. He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may also glorify you. So there was a time. But right now in this chapter, it was not his time. Again, he was in perfect control of the time that he was going to be crucified. He was no victim. He was no martyr. Jesus willingly laid down his life. Nobody took it from him. He said that. Nobody took it from him. In verse 7 it says, The world cannot hate you, he tells his brothers, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. And see, that is why the world hates you, Christian. The world hates you. But does that mean that we return evil for evil? The Bible says, be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. So what do we do when we are blasphemed? We continue to love. And that's hard to do in the natural, isn't it? Even as a Christian, isn't it hard? Everybody nod their heads because it's true. It's even hard as Christians to turn the other cheek. In John chapter 15, Jesus said, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, and I believe he would say this to his own brothers at this time, if the world 
If you were of the world, the world would love his own, but because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. He's speaking to his disciples here in the upper room. In that upper room, he's giving this address. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things they, will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. If I, had come, if I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin, but now they have no cloak for their sin. He that hateth me hateth the Father also. I love that when people say, well, I don't believe in Christ, but I believe in God. Uh, there's a problem, because if you don't believe in Jesus, you, you're not going to make it to heaven. He's his only means. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Is there any other way? Can you just believe in God the Father and say, ah, this Jesus thing I don't want anything to do with. I believe in, you know, uh, I believe in the prophet Moroni from the, the Mormon church. I believe in the teachings of Robert, T- you know, uh, uh, Taze Russell, you know, from the, the Watchtower. But I believe in God. I believe in Jehovah. Sorry, it doesn't work like that. You have to believe in Jesus. Yes, Jesus alone. It is inclusive, but it's open for every soul. Notice in verse 8, he says, You go up to this feast, brothers. I love you. (laughs) You go up to this feast, but I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. There it is again. And when when he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. Jesus didn't need to be a spectacle. He wasn't going to put himself on national television. So unlike the preachers today, unfortunately, Jesus had no desire to make a big fuss until the big fuss was going to be on the cross. That's when the fuss should have been made. Because that's when the lights turned out on the land. That's when the earthquake happened. That's when those who were dead in their graves rose, some of them. That's when the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom. That's when the price that had been foreordained before the foundation of the world for the sin of man had been completed and it was done As he said, it is finished. All those things came to pass. There was a time. Verse 10, it says, But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. Notice that Jesus' brothers, they would go through the motions of the feast. They would go up like they were supposed to. But either they either didn't know of or were ignorant to who Jesus was. But did they search the scriptures? Did they search the Old Testament? All the times they went to synagogue, weren't these scriptures speaking of their brother? When Isaiah 61 and Isaiah 11, Isaiah 9, verse 6, Isaiah 7, verse 14, Micah 5, 2, Genesis 3, 15, Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, all these verses pointing to him, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53. Did they put the pieces together and say, oh my gosh, he was born in Bethlehem. Remember when mom and dad, before they settled up here in Nazareth, that's where Jesus was born. Micah 5.2 says, But thou, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth the one who will reign, Jesus Christ, and his reign will be forever. Speaking of his deity. Do you know that it is possible to go through the motions? (laughs) To go through the motions externally, but internally be far away from God. People do it every day. People pay lip service to the Lord all the time. What does it tell us in Ephesians? Paul tells them, he says, Servants, be obedient to them who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and singleness of heart as unto Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God. What? From the thoughts? From my good intentions? No, from the heart. With good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men. To the Lord and not to men. Knowing that whatsoever good thing any man does, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he is bond or free. I love that. I hate myself. And, and there's times where I am a man, man pleaser. 
And the Lord reminds me of it when I am, and I hate it when it happens because I'm so ashamed. Perhaps you felt the same way when I, instead of doing what I know is right, I cave in to man, and I become a man-pleaser to keep the peace. I do that which is contrary to the word of God to keep the peace. It may only keep the peace for a moment. Believe me, there's a bumper crop of junk that's going to come after that, and you're going to have to deal with that. Right? There's a consequence, isn't there? There is a consequence for our rebellion against the word of God. In Colossians, he said the same thing. Servants, obey all things of your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers. But notice in that verse 10 it says, He also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. Again, Jesus had to go in secret because he was so well known. It wasn't his hour. It wasn't the right time for, he, for him to go up. He would go to the cross at the appointed time on the Passover. He would be the Passover lamb. He would go to the cross, as Psalm 22 tells us, when it was written, crucifixion hadn't even been invented for a few hundred years. And yet it says, they pierced me, my hands and my feet. Hadn't even been invented yet. Verse 11, it says, Then all the Jews sought him at the feast, because they remember him when he was there last. When was he there last? When he healed the man at, Beth, or at the pool of Bethesda. On the Sabbath. God help him. He did it on the Sabbath. <laughs> and they were all upset. They were all upset that he'd done this. And so they were seeking for him. And they said, Where is he? And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said, He's good. Others said, No, on the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. Fear is an awful thing. We all experience fear. But notice Jesus, pardon the phrase, but he was like the elephant in the room. When an elephant is in a room, he is the center of attention. Amen? If an elephant was to somehow appear before this room, he would take up several rows and everybody would be looking at him, right? Have you ever been in a place where there is a topic or something happening and yet nobody wants to talk about it? Everybody knows it, but nobody's talking about it. It's the elephant in the room. That's what Jesus was. He was there and they're looking for him. They're trying to search out who he is because they remembered what he did and they didn't forget it either. They didn't like it. There is no fear in love, but perfect love has cast out fear. Isn't that what the scripture says? But see, there was no real love in this gathering as the people were in fear of the religious leaders. Fear is an awful thing. Fear, as the song says, is a liar, isn't it? It's a liar. And they were the religious leaders, the elders, they were very antagonistic towards Jesus and toward anyone who would speak about him or of him in a favorable way. The people then had become man-pleasers. They wanted to please the religious leaders and the elders. They've left God in the back. Now they are focused on man. We want to please them because these guys are nasty. And if we don't do what they say and if we speak up about Jesus, our family's going to get kicked out of the synagogue. Nobody wanted that. They were afraid of being ostracized and excommunicated. But Paul exhorts us not to be men-pleasers. He said, do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? And I love his exhortation, for if I yet please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. I have to be one or the other. I can't be both. I'm either a servant of God or a servant of man. What are you going to be today? Are you going to be a servant of man or a servant of God? Make your decision today. I need to make that decision today. Verse 14, it says, now about the middle of the feast. So this is a seven-day feast, right? So somewhere in the middle, the third or the fourth day, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And why did he do that? He knew that he could. There was something about that day, and only God and God the Father and he knew about it. They were looking for him for three days. Finally, they probably just kind of gave up. And now he just kind of slips in under the radar and he's teaching people on the Temple Mount, in the court. 
And the Jews marveled, saying, how does this man know letters, having never studied? And the idea here is that he wasn't schooled. He wasn't among the, 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 the famous rabbis who had schools, you know, uh, Gamaliel or Hillel or any of these other men. You know, all these men in Jerusalem belonged to one of these camps of these famous rabbis. Jesus didn't belong to any of them. He claimed that he, everything he got was from God. And boy, they hated that. They hated that. Do you remember what happened when Jesus was in, uh, in Jerusalem? Remember when he was 12 years old? It's the only time written of, of him when he was that age. It says that he went up with his parents to the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, he went up to Jerusalem after the custom. And when he had fulfilled the days, they returned. But Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem. And, and they, his parents were looking for him. But they, supposing him to have been with the company, they went already a day's journey. And, and they sought among their kinsfolk and acquaintance. And they didn't find him. So they, they turn around and go back. And on the third day, they find him. And where do they find him? They find him in the temple. This 12-year-old young man speaking to the doctors of the law, the Pharisees, the scribes. And they're all asking questions. And he's answering and asking them questions. Unheard of unthinkable unthinkable where does this man learn have these learning where did he go to school what synagogue did he go to what rabbi is he studying under little did they know that he is the word of God become flesh the one who inspired the scriptures they're writing they're reading he was the one who inspired those writers to write it the very origin of the word of God that they purport to to believe is standing right before them speaking to them can you imagine I wish I could have been there I wish it was like a an mp3 of that recording can you imagine his voice what his voice must have sounded like and the gentleness in which he spoke the love that exuded from him and they were all amazed and notice what Jesus said. He says in verse 16, my, Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but is his who sent me. It wasn't his doctrine. It was God's doctrine. Again, many, many of the men would be under the tutelage of Gamaliel or Hillel or some of the doctors of the law. But Jesus, again, stated, It all comes from the Father. He gave it to me. I didn't go to anybody else. And the humanistic heart hates to hear this because they want to be responsible for Jesus' spiritual understanding. How did you understand this? How did you get this? You certainly had to go to Harvard. You certainly had to go to Oxford. You certainly had to go to Yale. How is it that you know all these things? I got it from my Father in heaven. Give me a break, kid. Yeah. Read it and weep. Yes. No one else. And they hated him for it. If Jesus wasn't going to be part of their club, they were going to shun him, reject him, and ultimately they had plans to kill him. Verse 17 in our text says, If anyone wills to do his will, he will know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak of my own authority. Do you want to do God's will? I think we would all say, of course we want to do God's will. Sometimes we just have a problem discerning what God's will is. And can I suggest to you that it's a lot easier than you might think? Can I suggest to you to just be in the word, be in prayer, and don't worry about it, and God will open the opportunities for you? He's done it in my life, and I know I'm no different than you are. You don't have to fuss and fight and stretch and worry and, and be consumed. Oh, am I doing the will of God? I want to do the will of God. Hey, let's just relax. Relax and love him. Serve him where you're serving him. Wherever you're at, serving him. And he will bring the opportunities. That's his job. That's not your job. He is faithful to do that. I've seen him do it. And he is good at it. And I don't have to stress or fight or kick or bite or spit. I don't have to do any of those things. I can just trust him. Do you trust him? Do you want to do as well? Just relax and be submitted to him. Lord, today I want to do your will. Help me to know how to do it. I don't know how to do it. Okay, then just rest. I'll guide you. He will guide you when you don't feel like you're being guided. Sometimes he brings external circumstances, external things coming into you to change your course for the day, and you had no idea. He does it all the time. Why? Because he's the divine chess master. 
He knows where you need to be to speak to somebody else who really needs to hear it because they just lost their husband. They just lost a loved one, and you just happen to be at the right place at the right time because your tire blew out on 490, and now you're at the Michelin place, and someone sitting next to you is crying, and you say, what's wrong? And there it is. The divine appointment occurs. How did that happen? Because I said, God, your will be done today. In Philippians, it said, It is God who works in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And the will of God, and James says that the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then it's peaceable, it's gentle, it's willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits. But many people don't want to come and do the Lord's will because the Bible says, again, excuse me, in 1 Corinthians 2, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are spiritually discerned. They're foolishness to him. Until he's born again, he's, it's like a different language that's being spoken. I remember that. Do you remember that? I remember the word of God and everything about me that somebody was telling, telling me about Jesus was like a different language. Remember Charlie Brown with the woman? You know, and he calls his you know, friend. You know, it was like that. I, I didn't understand it. I didn't get it. I was completely clueless. I had no idea what God's will was. Until the Spirit of God took residence in my heart. And all of a sudden, oh, the illumination. Not in some kind of hocus-pocus, new age thing. No, it's, it's very supernaturally natural. I don't know how it happened. I didn't ask for it. But now that I've, the, the Spirit of God is in me, it changes everything. Everything is changing. It's changing. I've changed, but I'm changing. Can you agree with that? I love it because we live in a world, folks, in a culture where might makes right and what is big, fast, and convenient is better and that which is evil is good and that which is good is evil. That's the world we live in. We need to do the will of God and seek out the will of God to seek him. But verse 18 says, He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true and no unrighteousness is in him. Jesus, speaking of himself, that he is sinless, that there is no unrighteousness within him. Do you see the order here? It's a divine order. The Spirit of God glorifies Jesus, and Jesus glorifies the Father. They are all equal, but they all have a role. They all have a purpose. And they're all united. They are, it's unity in plurality. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. The Spirit glorifies Jesus. If the Spirit of God is glorifying a man, it's not the Holy Spirit of God. If, a Spirit, if the Holy Spirit or people claiming it's the Holy Spirit is doing something, then it should be pointing to Jesus Christ. If it's not pointing to Jesus, it's something else. I would encourage you to ignore whatever that is. But if it is Jesus, he's going to point to Jesus. And who does Jesus point to? The President of the United States? Does he point to somebody else? Does he point to any other figure? No, he points everybody to the Father. Equal, but yet submitted to the Father. God is spirit who dwells in unapproachable light. I can't wait to see that. An unapproachable light. Can you imagine that? I mean, honestly, let your worship begin there. Think about that and just close your eyes and think. I'm going to see Jesus and I'm going to see God the Father in my new body when I get to glory. And I'm going to see that unapproachable light. I'll be able to withstand it in my new body. And I'll experience a peace and a joy and a love. And every other emotion that is holy and pure, it's going to happen all at once. You're going to feel like you just... And is there any reason? Is there any reason why our worship, you know, when you think of that, well, what's my position going to be? Am I going to be standing at that time? Probably not. I'm probably going to be like the Hoover vacuum cleaner. My face is going to hit the ground. I'm going to be so blown out with who God is and, who, and, and his effulgence and his glory, his beauty, and his love and compassion. All at once, it's just going to consume you. And it's going to be like, <clears throat> let your heart get raptured by that. That's where our worship begins. Looking at him. In verse 19 it says, Did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? And yet you, you are the ones who seek to kill me. Isn't that in the law? You shall not murder? Isn't that in the law of God? Isn't that the Ten Commandments? 
Not only were they trying to kill Jesus, but they were missing the real point of what it was all about. See, the Jews' religion had become, and this can happen to us too, it can be all external when we forget that it's all supposed to be about an internal reality, not just some kind of vestige that we put on and walk a certain way with something in our hand and light a candle. No, it's something that happens internally. It was never meant to be external. In Mark chapter 7, what did Jesus answered and said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men, laying aside the commandment of God. You hold to the tradition of men, the washing of pictures and cups, and many other such things that you do. And all too well you reject the commandment of God, that you may keep your traditions." It was all external. It had become external. And the Jews at this time that Jesus was speaking to them, they were stuck in this idea of the letter of the law, not in the spirit of the law, which is really what he had always designed. In Romans chapter 2, verse 28, it says, For for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter. You and I are, in a sense, a Jew because we believe in the God who Abraham professed to have faith in. I mean, we're not Jew in the physical sense. You understand what I'm saying. Because in the, in the spirit, yes, not in the flesh, but in the spirit, and certainly not in the letter, but in the spirit. In Matthew 5, remember, Jesus said, You've heard that it was said of those of old, You shall not commit murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But notice... He qualifies. See, the external, we always think of murder as, you know, somebody killing somebody. But Jesus takes it from the external and says, no, it was never meant to be. Certainly the external is the bad part. Hopefully it never gets to that part. But what's going on inside that's provoking you, that's causing you to do that thing? He says, but I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. He takes it from the physical act to something that's in the heart, something internal rather than something external. It's easier to do things by the letter, isn't it? To follow the rules and just do them without any heart attitude at all. Any of us can do that. We can follow, I mean, we really can't, the Ten Commandments, but if somebody tells you, just do this and do this and do this, okay, I can do that. Even though your heart is completely escaped from it, your heart doesn't even want to be involved. Has anybody done that? Gone through the motions? I have. I've gone through the motions, done the right things, but my heart wasn't in it at all. No change in my heart at all, just following the externals, following the law, the letter of the law, but there's no spirit behind it. And that's part of what legalism is. When you're just following the rules, but your heart is so unengaged from God, you're following the letter of the law, but anything outside of that, nope, can't see it, don't see it. You know, you become like that, uh, what's that, uh, Forrest Gump, you know. <laughs> Only do a, nope, can't, just got to do what's in front of me. You know, you just kind of focus on that one thing and who cares about anything else. But when the Spirit is guiding, he's changing everything. And you'll, you'll never violate the will of God by obeying the Spirit of God. Right? Verse 20, it says, the people answered and said, you have a demon. Who's trying to kill you? Well, they were. (laughs) And this wasn't the last time that they would tell Jesus that he has a demon. In John chapter 8, they say, Jesus answered and said to them, um, do we say rightly that you are a, I'm sorry, the Jews answered and said to Jesus, do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? In John chapter 10, verse 17 Jesus speaking says, Therefore my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. And then later on, in verse 20 it says, The people said, You have a demon. You're mad. Another said, These are not the words of the one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? But they said the same thing about John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, didn't they, in Matthew? John neither came eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. Why is it that only the pure, the truly pure, the world sees as under some demonic influence? Didn't Isaiah say that 
They will say what is good is evil and what is evil is good. Aren't they doing it even back here in the first century church? And have things gotten any better? No, now abortion is good. Now, now um, embracing all the things that are in our culture. Oh, it's good, it's not bad. You have the right to do that. Yeah, you do have the right to do it. You do. Wouldn't recommend it. But they were the ones who were seeking to kill him. They tried to do it back in John chapter 5. He said, My father has been working until now, and I have been working, and therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him. They wanted to kill him. In John chapter 8, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. There's no place in your heart where God's word is concerned. Why is that? He could ask them. Jesus loved them. But here, nothing had changed. Nothing had changed. And Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work and you all marvel. This work that he's speaking of is that work of the miracle in Jerusalem. The last time he was there, he healed that man at the pool of Bethesda. That's the work that he's speaking of. And he did it on the Sabbath. He said, Moses therefore gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. And if a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me now because I made a man completely whole on the Sabbath? And he says, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment with righteous judgment it's very easy to judge according to the appearance isn't it we do it all the time in isaiah 11 it says speaking of jesus this root of david his delight is in the fear of the lord and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes nor shall he decide by the hearing of his ears but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth that's who jesus is that's what he wants us to do is to judge righteously not to judge according to the appearance but we know again that the jews were hung up on the externals Remember the dialogue that Jesus had with the Pharisees. It was, a na- it was a nasty confrontation. And many people think, well, how could he be that mean? How could he be that pointed? Well, Jesus had a problem with religious leaders. He was much kinder to the average person who was oblivious. But to the people who claimed to know God and were teaching people the wrong things, he did not like that. He took them to task. And what did he tell them in Matthew? And I'll just read a couple verses. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup of the dish, but inside you are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of your cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean. And woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, your play actors, for you are like the whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all of uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to man but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness judge righteously don't judge according to the appearance it's hard to do isn't it it's really hard to do and even Samuel was caught off guard you remember in 1 Samuel 16 as God tells Samuel to go to Jesse to his eight sons Go there and take the oil with the flask, and I want you to anoint the one who I am going to anoint over the king of Israel, as, as the king of Israel. So Samuel goes, and David, unbeknownst to Samuel, is out in the field, far away, you know, away from the other seven brothers. And so they bring Eliab, the very tallest, the most handsome, the next, you know, the firstborn. And Samuel goes, that's got to be the guy. He's got blonde hair. He looks great. He's got blue eyes. He looks like Fabio. This guy... He could even clean a pool. He even, he's a great pool cleaner. But he's, he's here, and, and they're looking at him thinking, this is the guy. And God says, no. Samuel, you're looking at the outward appearance. And so finally, he goes down through them, and God's like, nope, haven't chose him, haven't chose him, haven't chose him. Jesse, are there any other sons? Oh, yeah, there's a son out in the field, David. Uh, it's all right, you don't need, to, you don't need him, do you? 
He goes, yeah, we're going to wait until he comes. And then when he did come, God says, that's the one. That's the one. The one that nobody wanted. The off-scouring. The other brothers were too important to take care of sheep and clean up after sheep. And No, it was David. He goes, that's the one. That's the one that the scriptures have been all about. The scriptures have been all about this, this young man. So do you feel rejected? Jesus was rejected in Jerusalem this time. How about you? Do you feel rejected? I do. Not by all of you. Not by my family. Not by my immediate family anyway. But there are people, relatives, who've rejected me. They don't really want me anymore. And that's okay. That's okay. Do you feel rejected like Jesus was rejected? Have you been rejected by your family, your friends, your coworkers, maybe even your spouse? Well, I got some good news for you. You're in good company. And isn't this true, what the Bible tells us in Philippians? What does it say? Paul knew this very well because he was a very popular guy. He was a, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was uh, blameless according to the law. He did everything. He did all the right things. He went to all the right schools. He grew up under Gamaliel, a very important rabbi. He had everything going for him until the Lord got a hold of him, and the Lord just dissolved everything and said, Paul, you don't know anything. You think you got everything under control. Let me tell you, you don't know anything. And he took him out into the desert for three and a half years to reveal to him personally God's plan. That aren't you glad that we have written for us? Nearly two-thirds of the, the New Testament is from the hand of Paul, who had a direct confrontation with Jesus Christ out there in Arabia for over three and a half years. But here's my final exhortation to you if you feel rejected like Jesus. You're in good company, but Paul said this in Philippians. And I want you to encourage you, and then we'll end here, to be mindful of this. You know, a lot of people think when they come to Christ that it's just a big bowl of ice cream, that everything is going to get better. And, and, and you know, there, it does. It does get better in some ways, but sometimes that there's a lot greater trials that come as a result of that, isn't there? Sometimes, I didn't even know I was alive until I finally got saved. Then my troubles really began. I thought I was in trouble then. And granted, I'm forgiven, I'm cleansed, I, the Lord is doing great things. And, and the things, I would never switch to go back to that old man, that old nature, that old time of my life. That, that man is dead. He's buried. He's taking a dirt nap. Hallelujah. <laughs> and so is your old man. He's dead too. He's taking a dirt nap. He's dead. But we've been raised to newness of life, aren't we? And with that comes responsibility. With that comes a realization that we are also in enemy territory. Wouldn't you agree? Who's the ruler of this world right now? It is Satan. It is. God's going to take care of him, and it's written for us in Scripture. But what do we do until then? Are we desiring to have the accolades and the praise and the ad admonition and the admiration of man? What did Paul say? But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. This is the mind that we need to have within us because it is so different from the world. It is so different from the world. He says, yet indeed, I also count all things, all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him. Here's the, this is the desire, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the part that we don't like, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, that's something we don't like as Christians. And honestly, we don't revel in that. But we also understand that we are in good company when you are rejected, when you are scorned, when you are persecuted as a Christian. And believe me, in this country, it has already begun and it's going to get worse. But what are you going to do, my beloved friends? Seriously, 
What are we going to do? Are we going to pull out guns and go after them? No, God hasn't called us to be a militia. We're more important than a militia. What you can do on your knees is far more important. What you can do with your life is far more important than grabbing a gun and going to the front lines. He hasn't called us to violence. But do you feel rejected? Have you felt rejected? You're in good company, but don't take it to heart and be sad about it because this is just part and parcel of being a believer in Jesus Christ. This is just part of it, right? It's part and parcel of being a believer. Paul said that, didn't he? That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. That's great, but also the fellowship of his sufferings. Have you suffered over the last year and a half? Yeah, you have. I know you have, and I have too. Even before that, we all suffer. We go through heartbreaks family breakups, children running amok, spouses breaking off, doing their own thing, breaking your heart in a million pieces, shattering everything in you that you thought was good. You're just like, Lord, how could it get any worse? This world is getting so bad. It's getting so dark. What am I going to do? Jesus says, just follow me and stay close to me. I'll take you along for the ride, and soon I'm going to redeem your body from the earth. I'm looking forward to that day. that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Hallelujah. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and pray. Father, we thank you for this passage again. And Lord, just as Jesus was rejected, we know that we will also be rejected. Lord, help us not to take, uh, take that too much to heart and, and feel like we've somehow... Uh, done something wrong, Lord. Help us not to assume that we're not in your will when things are difficult, when things go awry, when everything just seems to be falling apart and relationships and health and my own heart, Lord. Everything just starts to go south, God. Help us not to assume that just because these things are happening that we're out of your will, that, that somehow we are missing the boat, Lord. In fact, we're still in the boat. I believe many of us are being deceived and thinking because of the hardships that we are no longer your children. But the fact of the matter is, Lord, you were in that boat in the storm in the Galilee, in the center of a storm, and there you were in the midst of them. With the three lads in the fiery furnace in Babylon, you were there with them. They didn't even want to get out, Lord, and you were there with them. And Lord, we are here today, and we have these storms and these trials, and Lord, help us to know that we are in your presence, and that you're with us. You're Emmanuel. You will said you would never leave us nor forsake us. You are God with us, even to the end of the age in which we are. And I thank you for that. I pray you bless my brothers and sisters. Encourage their faith. Strengthen their faith. Bless them immensely, God, in their worship and in their adoration, their awe, their devotion, their worship of you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.